Good morning. Uh, it is such a blessing uh, to see each and every one of your faces today. I know we have many people uh, who are out either traveling or, or sick. Um, but what, what a privilege and blessing it is uh, that God has given us opportunities such as this to come together as a family, uh, to join our hearts together and, and praise and love towards Him um, and in supporting each other as we seek uh, to live in a way that, that is glorifying to Him. A couple of weeks ago, we started discussing the concept of authority and asked the question, do we need God's permission? Um, and I hope you could appreciate from that lesson that, that seeking God's permission and approval to act in all that we do is, is not within itself a, a pharisaical or a legalistic thing. If we genuinely respect Jesus's authority as Lord and King, then we're going to be devoted to making sure everything we do in word or in deed is all in the name of the Lord, by his uh, authority, according to his will, or with his approval. And and we shouldn't have the independent spirit of a teenager who who takes pride in the fact that he can do things without his parents' permission, right? That's not the kind of attitude that we should be cultivating in our attitude towards the Lord. Rather, we should have the attitude of a, a little child, who humbly seeks assurance that what they're doing is approved and pleasing to uh, their parents, uh, to our God in this case. But, but we saw in our lesson two weeks ago that not all permissions we are granted by God are expressly communicated. While our entire lives are undoubtedly under the realm of, of God's authority by the very act of creating us and giving us dominion over his creation, uh, God gave us a a great deal of implied permissions, um, certainly in the realm of of day-to-day living, especially. Uh, Reading through the the first few pages of our Bibles, we we concluded a a few of the following ideas, though. First of all, all that God has created must be maintained according to his design and intent. Permissions we have are within this design, not beyond it. We saw this in Genesis 2 with God's institution of of marriage. Um, We recognize we have no right to change the definition of marriage, uh, of family, of gender, of sexuality. What God has designed and established, no man has the right to alter or corrupt. We're free to explore, discover, and innovate within his design, but not beyond it, not outside of it. and I think we see that this uh, applies certainly to the, the organization and practice of, of the church as well. Uh, we also saw matters of worship and communion with God are not within the realm of our dominion. We saw this in Genesis 4 with uh, Cain and Abel bringing their offering to the Lord. They didn't get to decide what was pleasing and not pleasing. Uh, worship isn't about us. It's about God. Uh, and he decides what's pleasing or displeasing, acceptable or unacceptable on the altars of worship. Uh, He gets to decide the parameters within which we can commune with him. And on any matter where God has chosen to specify his will, we must submit to what he has revealed. We fast forward a little bit all the way to Numbers 2 in our lesson and saw even in the arrangement of the camp uh, for the Israelites in the wilderness, God decided to specify how he wanted that done. Now, we might have thought that that was in the realm of just kind of day-to-day life, things that we could decide on our own, how we wanted to pitch our tent, Uh, but God spoke about it. 
And God specified what he wanted, and therefore we're not at liberty uh, to go outside of that. God, uh, by giving us dominion over his creation, didn't somehow limit his authority. Wherever God chooses to speak, wherever God chooses to specify, uh, then we need to listen and make sure we're abiding within what he has said. Um, And lastly, we saw that where God has specified his will, where he has spoken and revealed uh, his will on something, his silence on any uh, adjacent, additional, or or alternative matter is prohibitive. Uh, Not all silence is restrictive, uh, but silence doesn't authorize anything either. So the freedoms we have are within what he has revealed, not in any way beyond it. and, and I review some of those things. I, w- I want to make sure that I'm not leaving the impression that applying these principles is always simple and straightforward. Um, understanding God's will is not accomplished by developing some strict checklist-like framework that we thoughtlessly apply to every doctrinal question and, and come out with the right answer. Um, and so this, this is not intended to be presented in that way. Pursuing God's will is something that we will always have to take uh, diligent time and effort in doing. We'll have to to study. We're going to have to honestly think through all that's been revealed uh, and to desire to understand exactly what God intends to communicate. That's the goal. Um, This this isn't some, uh, you know, impersonal, uh, technical, uh, legalistic thing that that we uh, just have this framework of questions that are going to pop out the right answer. This is the pursuit of God's mind and heart. This is the pursuit of understanding what is God intending to communicate. Uh, but I hope that talking through some of these consistent principles regarding authority, God's communication to us, and how we interpret and understand that will better equip us to do that difficult work of, of pursuing his heart, pursuing his will, understanding what he's intending to communicate to us in a legitimate and, and honest way. And so today, I want us to dig a little deeper into some of those questions and and ask the question, how does God communicate his will? How do we know when God is intending to specify something and when it's just mentioned more generally as maybe one of many options within God's will? How do we know when God is implying permissions and when he is implying prohibitions? Um, Well, first of all, I think we need to acknowledge that not all of God's revelation is in the form of precise instructions. We've we've studied this recently in Acts chapter 10, if you want to turn your Bibles over there. Remember, as God is communicating to Peter that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, they don't need to become Jews, that the gospel needs to be taken out to all nations, how does God communicate that to him? Well, if you look in Acts chapter 10 and verse 28, as Peter reaches some of his conclusions, he says here in verse 28 uh, to Cornelius' household, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. How exactly did God show that to Peter? How did God communicate that to Peter? Um, Was it by precise instruction? Here? Were these the precise words that God used? Uh, was God specifically speaking to Peter uh, about his attitude towards Gentile men and women and what God revealed? Well, obviously that was the intent. That is the conclusion that God was guiding people, uh, Peter towards reaching. But if you remember, God gives him a vision, a vision with animals coming down in a sheet, uh, clean and unclean animals, 
And God tells him, arise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, not so, Lord. My, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. He says, what I have sanctified, uh, you shall not call common or unclean. God didn't use precise instructions about Cornelius, about people, but he gave him this, this illustration to help Peter reach a conclusion. Acts 10, 34 and 35 Peter uh, furthermore says, I most certainly understand now, or I perceive that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. How, how did Peter understand that? How did Peter perceive that? Well, he, he's putting some things together that God has revealed to him and reaching a conclusion. And, and I think part of what I want us to see here is that God values the reasoning process. God could have very precisely told Peter exactly what he wanted him to understand. But instead, God uses a vision. God uses some different uh, examples and circumstances uh, and principles that Peter would have known from the old law to help him arrive at a conclusion. God intends for us to study, to think through things, to arrive at conclusions, to make applications. He doesn't spoon feed everything to us. He expects us to exercise the minds that he gave us so that we might learn and develop the ability to discern good and evil, uh, to discern right and wrong. Uh, His word gives us everything we need to accomplish that, but it doesn't always uh, simply do that work for us. And you see this further in Acts 15, Remember, uh, a question arises about the necessity of of circumcision for Gentiles uh, who are responding to the gospel. But but how do the apostles and elders resolve that issue? How does God resolve that matter for them? Does God give them a new, precisely worded revelation answering the specific question? Well, no, that's not what happens in Acts 15. Uh, God allows them to, to take some time to reason through and think through and discuss through these things that they can arrive at the proper conclusion. God leaves them to work through the reasoning process together in a way that will help them grow and develop in, in wisdom and in unity. In Acts 15 and in verse 8, we see in this gathering of the apostles and elders and others there in Jerusalem uh, that Peter stands up and he uh, draws a conclusion from the experience that he had with Cornelius' household and what God was testifying through giving them the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 12, Paul and Barnabas stand up uh, and they draw some conclusions from the signs and wonders that God was doing uh, through them, affirming the message that they had been preaching among the Gentiles. And then in Acts 15 and verse 15, uh, James stands up And he sees a connection between all that's being said here and what was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. And and so here, they're they're arriving at conclusions from what God had done and God had revealed through different examples and different Old Testament prophecies. And so I think we can see that God expects us to use the same type of reasoning, uh, drawing conclusions from all that he has revealed to us in the words and examples recorded for us in the scriptures. And this really tests the sincerity of our hearts. It, it tests uh, and, and challenges our, our abilities of discernment as we seek to grow in that so that we can learn and grow to better understand the heart of God uh, through the sometimes difficult process of applying principles, looking at examples, and trying to understand what it is exactly that God is seeking to communicate 
to us. And so as we think about that, we, we can talk about a lot of different ways that God communicates his will to us and expects us to, to draw conclusions about what it is that he's intending for us to understand. But, but one of the primary ways I want us to think about today is that God often uses examples and patterns to communicate his will. But most often where we don't have precise instructions, God is communicated to us through some form of example or illustrated principle. Uh, even some of the more direct instructions uh, in Scripture might end up coming to us as examples, as in their original context, they were instructions to a different people, a different audience, and a different context. Uh, and so even some of those instructions really uh, are, are examples for us. So it's extremely important we come to appreciate and learn how to understand what God is communicating to us through examples uh, and make sure that we understand correctly how he intends for us to apply them. Uh, but, but look in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9 just, just to see very clearly that God intends to communicate to us through examples. Look, look in Philippians 4 and verse 9 as Paul is talking to the church in Philippi said, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What were they supposed to practice? Um, well, it wasn't just the things that they heard, not just precise instructions that had been written down for them, but in fact, it, examples that they saw in Paul's practice and things that they learned from, from observing him. And if you go back to Philippians 3, the passage that Christopher read for us a moment ago, look in Philippians 3 and verse 17. It says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. What's going to help us stay on a path worthy of the gospel being genuine disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, it's not just Paul's words and instructions, but his example, according to the pattern you have in us, he says. They were supposed to look at what it was that Paul was doing and teaching and, and glean from those examples a, a pattern to follow. What, what is a pattern? You know, I, I think back when I was younger, um, my mom had a little wooden box. I think my grandpa made it, in fact, um, that had a piece of glass at the top. And on the bottom, there, there was a, a light bulb that would go inside. And we, um, many times, if we wanted to trace something, we would put it on that, that light box, we'd turn it on, and then we'd trace on top of the pattern. Right? When I think about pattern, that, that's the idea that I have here. You, you have something that is a pattern that you're trying to copy. You're trying to, to follow. Uh, and in a sense, that, that's what God is intending to present to us through patterns and examples of the scriptures. What was this pattern Paul is speaking about only available to those who spent time with him in person? Was it available only to those uh, that had personal interactions with him? Well, no, the pattern of the apostles in the early church is left within the scriptures for us to trace as well. Uh, and, and not only do we see this in Philippians, but in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. 
you, you see that Paul is trying to trace the example that he's being left by Christ. Uh, and he's leaving that for us to, to trace as well. But look in 1 Corinthians 4, even earlier to the saints in Corinth, um, verse 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, it says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Why did they need Timothy? Why, why, why didn't this letter suffice, right? Paul's writing, telling them what they're supposed to do. Uh, well, Timothy was going to go, and he was going to remind them of Paul's ways in Christ. There were some examples that needed to be illustrated for them to see and, and follow. Um, and so as Paul is tracing the pattern of Christ, um, that's the pattern that he's leaving for others to trace as well. There, there was a consistent pattern, a consistent way to be followed. And, and I think we need to acknowledge here in these passages, both in 1 Corinthians and in Philippians, that the pattern example Paul is talking about here is much more all-encompassing than simply how to handle our assemblies um, or some, some business model for the, the church or some liturgical checklist of what we're supposed to do. It, it's a pattern of discipleship. Um, it's, it's a pattern of how being a disciple of Jesus should look in every aspect of our lives. Uh, but I think that that does uh, include maybe some of the more logistical things of, of church organization and, and practice as well. Um, it's much more all-encompassing, the examples that were left here. Um, but this should cause us to see every New Testament example as a potential pattern for our learning. We need to be asking the questions, why did God include this example? Uh, what does he intend to communicate us to us through this example? How should it be applied to our lives as Christians and our work and function as, as God's people? But as we think about examples, we need to acknowledge that not all examples are necessarily prescriptive. Um, let, let me use an illustration here. If your father was going to teach you how to change the oil on, on your car. Um, there, there would be some aspects of his example uh, that would obviously be essential, right? Maybe the tools that he used, the steps that he took um, to do certain things, to remove the old oil, replace the filter, add in new oil. But, but there might be some aspects of his example that would be non-essentials, uh, incidental, like uh, the time of day that he chose to change the oil, right? Um, or the, the color shirt that he wore while he was changing the oil, or, or the expression on his face while he was, you know, uh, using the, the wrench. Um, there, there'd be aspects of those examples that, that weren't intended to be communicated as part of the pattern. And so, as we look at examples and patterns, we're, we're going to have to do the sometimes difficult work of determining, okay, what, what is part of the pattern? Um, I, I even think about, uh, you know, on that light box that, that uh, mom would have that we would trace pictures on. You know, sometimes the picture that we were tracing would have like a page number on it or, or you know, some words on the side. Or maybe it would have, uh, you know, the place where uh, the paper had been hole punched. You know, were, were those part of the pattern? Was that part of what I was supposed to trace? Well, no, it was there, but, but it wasn't part of the intended pattern. And so what we're trying to do when we come to biblical examples is, is to determine, okay, what does God intend to communicate as part of the pattern? And that's going to be difficult sometimes. 
I, I don't intend to um, make this seem as if it's something that, that's always simple, but I think these are the kind of questions we need to be asking and working through to determine what God intends for us uh, as his people. Dealing with biblical examples is going to take some discernment to understand what God, exactly God intends to communicate. Uh, no, you're fine. What, what is instructive, what is prescriptive about the examples and what is not? And so I want to look at some principles or some questions that will hopefully help us draw the proper conclusions regarding biblical examples. And again, this is not a mindless, impersonal um, kind of checklist that we're working through, but I think hopefully these are questions that will get us working in the right direction. First of all, is an example, in fact, approved by God? Right? Obviously, we have some examples for us that are not divinely approved within the scriptures, not, not intended to be part of the pattern left for us. Um, for instance, Galatians chapter 2, uh, we see Paul withstands Peter to the face for the example that he was setting of withdrawing from Gentile brethren and holding himself aloof out of fear for what his Jewish brethren would think when they came to town. Uh, he was being hypocritical in the way he was responding to that situation. Uh, and Others were led astray by his example. Even Barnabas followed that same example that he saw in Peter. Um, and uh, to, to his shame, that was not what God desired of them. Um, and so just because an example is coming from the apostles, just because it's coming from the early church, doesn't necessarily mean that it's coming from God. It doesn't necessarily mean it's part of the pattern that God intends for us. If you look back in Acts 15, remember as they're working through this question... Uh, about circumcision, whether or not the Gentiles need to be circumcised. Um, in Acts 15 and verse 12, one of the arguments presented here by Paul and Barnabas, it says in verse 12, all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Why was that worth mentioning? Why, why was that helpful in them reaching their conclusion? Was it because Paul spoke up and said, well, listen, this is what I've been doing, and this is what Barnabas has been doing? Well, no, it wasn't because Paul did it. It wasn't because Barnabas did it. It was because God was showing his divine approval in that. That's why that was valuable. That's why that was presented as part of the pattern, because clearly this was approved by God. And so that's what we're seeking as we go to the scriptures, as we look at examples. It's not just, do we have an example of this happening, of somebody doing this? It's, do we have an example that indicates that this is what God wanted them to be doing? Um, but let me use another example that might make this a little bit more complicated, but I think it would be helpful to think through. Uh, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and I want us to think about the way Jesus approaches this question of divorce uh, and the way that the Pharisees approach this question. Now, granted, um, there may be an aspect of additional revelation here as G Jesus renders a new covenant judgment regarding marriage and divorce and how that needs to be handled. Um, but I think in the way that he reasons here, we can learn some things about how we're supposed to reason from biblical examples. Uh, Matthew 19, starting in verse 9, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. Um, what's going on here? What, what, what's the difference in the reasoning from Jesus and the Pharisees? Well, Jesus appeals to a divine instruction and example back in the garden. This is what God intended. This is what God designed. This is his will for marriage. And the scribes and Pharisees, they, they speak up and they say, well, but, but what about Moses? Moses, uh, I, I believe by divine direction and inspiration in Deuteronomy 24, permitted them to divorce their wives. Well, and what Jesus says here is that because of your hardness of heart, he permitted you to divorce your wives, but that wasn't God's intent. That wasn't God's design from the beginning. In Matthew 24, what you have is God regulating a practice, a corrupt practice that they were already taking part in. He says, if you do this, and if you do that, then I'm going to set these parameters on it. That wasn't God's design. That wasn't God's intent. And so I think sometimes we have situations where God in his mercy may per permit something um, throughout the Bible, but that doesn't necessarily mean this is what God wants, and this is what God intends. For example, if, if we're going to expand this even to the, the entirety of scripture, um, you know, just because God didn't strike the patriarchs dead for lying or for practicing polygamy or for having household slaves doesn't mean that that's his intent and design and desire for us, right? Sometimes God in his mercy permitted things, but that's not what he desires of us. Um, and so in every example, we need to ask the question, is God recording this for us as a positive example of what he desires and what he intends? Um, because even if God today would, would, in his mercy, permit it, um, if my goal is pursuing the will of God, then that, that's not enough. Just because God may permit me to do something that's not entirely according to his will, thank God for his mercy, but, but I'm seeking his will. I'm seeking to please him. I'm seeking to glorify him. And so we need to ask in every example given, is this illustrating to us something that we can know for sure was in fact pleasing to the Lord, was according to his will and his design? Secondly, is an example applicable to our situation? Uh, is it directly applicable or relevant? Uh, you know, not all approved examples in the Bible are going to have a one-to-one -one parallel with our modern context today, um, with our service to the Lord under the new covenant. Uh, just to give an illustration, I, I've heard a story before that there was uh, a young lady who learned to uh, cook a ham from seeing her mother do it. Uh, and every time her mother cooked a ham, she, she cut off the, the ends of that ham and cooked them in a separate pan. Uh, and so as this young lady grew up, she thought, okay, well, that's how you cook a ham. You always cut off the, the ends um, and, and cook them separately. Uh, and one day she finally asked her mother, well, why, why do you do that? She said, well, I don't know why you do it, but my pan wasn't big enough to fit the ham. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so there, there's an example of, of there being a difference in context and uh, an assumption that that applies to us, well, maybe our situation is different. Maybe it doesn't apply to us. 
Um, and so, for instance, something like Job chapter 1. Job very clearly is lifted up to us as a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. And one of the first things that we hear about Job in Job chapter 1 in verse 5 Uh, I think something that does, in fact, illustrate his integrity uh, and piety towards God. In verse 5, talking about his children, uh, it says, When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, his children, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Well, I think there's some things that we can learn from this, some principles that we can learn from this. Um, But is that a prescriptive pattern for us today as fathers, as leaders in our home? Um, Well, in fact, this wouldn't be according to God's will even in the Old Covenant uh, within Israel. I think Job is probably pre-Old Covenant, uh, at least outside of Israel. But he's offering sacrifices um, for his children, something that would have needed to be done by by the priests under the old covenant within Israel, um, and certainly not under the new covenant where Jesus is our sacrifice. So there's some things that we can learn from this, but but it's not a one-to-one parallel with who we're supposed to be as leaders of our own home, right? Uh, And you can see that most clearly as we think about the contrast between the old and new covenant. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 Paul here writes, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You know, some of the things that Paul mentions here were not only approved by God under the Old Covenant, they were required by God under the Old Covenant. The Sabbath day, certain food laws, um, the observance of of certain feast days, And yet, we recognize that under a new covenant context, uh, there there are going to be things that are different in our service to God. And even as some of the Jews in the early church may have continued some of these practices for a time, and God permitted that as they're learning what it is that God desires of them under the new covenant, that doesn't indicate to us that that was God's design and intent for us in our worship to him today. And so there, there's going to be a lot of questions that we need to ask and work through, but what we need to determine, is this directly applicable to us today? I, I think in some way, every example of the scriptures are going to have some principles that we can learn from them. Certainly there are a lot of things that these Old Testament images uh, and the, the physical shadow point us towards a spiritual truth that we can apply today. But we need to be careful about making a one-to-one comparison with something that that is not directly applicable um, to our context and what God desires of us as his people today. Thirdly, is an example consistent or or, or exclusive within the scriptures? You know, not every New Testament example we have recorded is part of the pattern that Paul or the other apostles were laying down for the New Testament church to follow. Some of the examples may be situation-specific, incidental, or or just one of many options in our service to the Lord. Uh, One example uh, that I think we can consider, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, we see that there was a church that met in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. Not only do we see it there, but we see there was a church that met in Nympha's house in Colossians 4, verse 15, a church that met in Philemon's house, in Philemon 1 and verse 2. Uh, That seems 
very often in the New Testament church, uh, there, there were local congregations that met in people's houses. Well, is that, is that part of the pattern? Is that what we're supposed to be doing today? Do we need to make sure that we're meeting in, in one of our houses? Well, obviously not. Um, Acts 19, verse 8 through 10, gives us a different example. Um, Acts 19, we see that when Paul was in Ephesus, for a time, the saints were assembling in the local synagogue. Uh, and then when they were no longer welcomed within the synagogue, he takes the disciples, they leave there, and they start assembling regularly in the school of Tyrannus. Evidently, uh, a building that was uh, available for public use or possibly for, for rent. Um, and so we, we recognize the very simple principle that for something to be a pattern, it has to be continuous and unbroken, right? Um, if I was trying to teach Ruby about patterns and I, I set a line of shapes together, and it went circle, triangle, square, circle, triangle, square. Well, well there's a pattern, right? Because it's consistent. It continues. Um, but if I set a, a line of shapes in front of her that was circle, triangle, square, triangle, circle, octagon, well, that's not a pattern, right? There's nothing that indicates it's intended to be a pattern. For a pattern to be a pattern, it has to be consistent, right? Um, and so we need some indication that this is intended as a pattern. Not every example is going to be consistent within the scriptures. Uh, I think in this case, we, we see that we have some freedom, uh, some options, and, and where we assemble. And there's no significance attached to these locations uh, that would indicate to us that these are the three options available to us. And unless it's the synagogue, the school of Tyrannus, or our home, then we're not following the biblical pattern. Right? It's, it's no indication that that was intended as uh, an exclusive um, pattern. And very closely related to that, is an example significant? Uh, is it non-incidental? Um, as we talked about earlier, uh, if, if your father was teaching you to change the oil uh, on the car, per perhaps... Every time your father changes the oil on the car, he always wears the same flannel work shirt, right? Uh, and it's, it's consistent. It's exclusive. Every time he does, he wears that shirt. Um, is that part of the pattern? <laughs> does that mean that, that we need to go out and buy a flannel shirt with the same pattern to make sure that we wear it? You know, or maybe he does make the same expression every time he, he turns the, the, the wrench. Is, is that part of the pattern? Well... I think we have to have some indication, not only of that it's continuous, not only that it's consistent, but that there is some um, significance linked to it, that it's intended as part of the pattern. I, I, uh, I think we would rather conclude that those are incidental to the example, not a significant part of the pattern itself. Same thing with, with my mother's light box. You know, maybe every single pattern that she put on there had a page number, and it, it had uh, three hole punches. Well, was that part of the, the pattern just because it was consistent? Uh, no, uh, it's incidental to the pattern itself. And so one example that I think we can see, um, you know, every time the location is specified where the Lord's Supper is partaken, it's always in an upper room. Uh, Luke 22, when uh, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper with his disciples, they prepared the Passover in a large furnished upper room. That's where the Last Supper took place. Uh, and so he uh, both institutes it in an upper room. And in Acts 20, verse 7 and 8, when Paul assembles together with the church at Tro Troas to, to break bread, 
uh, it was in an upper room. Remember, it's that instance where Eutychus falls out of the third story window. And so every time we see an example of the uh, early disciples partaking of the Lord's Supper, it's always in an upper room. Is there any indication to us that that is part of the pattern? That God intended for us to make sure that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's in an upper room. It is consistent. But I don't think that there is any indication that God intended to communicate to us when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it needs to be in an upper room. What, what, what significance would the Bible communicate to us that that has? As far as I can tell, it's an incidental, just like my father wearing the same flannel shirt every time he uh, changes the oil. On the other hand, and this is helpful because Paul, uh, because Paul, because uh, Carl just preached about this uh, on, on uh, last Sunday. What about the first day of the week? You know, Acts 20 and verse 7, we see an example that it was on the first day of the week that Paul assembled with the brethren at Troas in order to break bread to take the Lord's Supper. Well, I think we do have some indications that that was part of the pattern. In 1 Corinthians 16, we have an indication that when they, as they evidently regularly did, came together on the first day of the week, they were to lay aside as they prospered into a common collection. So there's, there's an indication that this was a regular practice of them coming together on the first day of the week. And not only that, Revelation 1 verse 10 uh, John talks about being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, what, is, what does he mean by that, on the Lord's day? Uh, well, if we look at that phrase in, in its historical context, we can learn a little bit that that was a common phrase used to describe the first day of the week. Why? Well, even more so, uh, Luke 22 and some of the other Gospels would tell us that it was on the first day of the week that Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, and Carl even delved into some uh, further significance of some of those things. I think there's some indication to us that this was, in fact, a significant part of the pattern. There's a reason behind that, a regularity to that, um, that, that is what the early church was doing consistently, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, and that there was a reason behind that, Jesus being raised on the first day of the week. Now, I, I don't know how dogmatic we are warranted in being about that, um, but, but if our goal is not to find out what we can get away with. <laughs> if, if our goal is to discover, okay, what, what is it that God wants and how can we best follow what he's communicating and illustrating to us through the scriptures? If our primary motivation is to do things God's way and follow the pattern revealed to us in the scriptures as best we can, I, I think we have strong enough reason to conclude that he intends for us to break bread on the first day of the week. Um, and that, that is not incidental to the pattern, but part of the pattern. So again, I, I'm not claiming that this is always easy. Um, this is not some mindless thing that you just ask these questions, check off the list, and you come out with the right answer. Um, but, but I think if we want to understand what God is communicating to us, uh, then, then we need to uh, hopefully apply some of these questions. I hope they'll be helpful as you dig in uh, and try to understand uh, what the pattern is that God has left for us. Um, and so this is not some technical framework or checklist that we can mindlessly apply, um, but I hope it will be helpful questions for us to ask, principles for us to consider. Um, and if we want more than anything to please God, if we want to respect Jesus's authority as our Lord and King, then we need to be the kind of people who are serious about doing things 
God's way with his permission and approval. Um, we need to study the examples and patterns left to us in the scriptures and make sure we're properly understanding what God is intending to communicate. That's the goal. It's not to, you know, come, come up with some technical framework. The goal is what is God intending to communicate? It's not some impersonal, technical, logistical process uh, we're, we're talking about. This is part of delving into the mind and heart of God, seeking to properly understand what he wants us to do, what he wants us to be, to practice and to teach. And so I, I hope these things we've talked about today will help be helpful to you as you seek to discern God's will. Um, but let me close with this. Often the problem is not... Uh, our ability to discern God's will. Often the problem is, is, is not uh, our ability to understand it. It's our, our willingness and genuine desire to submit to it. Um, we, we need to make sure more than anything else, before we even start this reasoning process of trying to determine God's will, that our heart is in the place that, that we're not having that rebellious teenage spirit that is, is you know, excited to do whatever we can um, without God's approval or permission. We need to have the humble heart of a child who more than anything wants to make sure, God, this is what you want me to do, right? I want your approval. I want to be pleasing to you. I want to know that, that this is glorifying to you. Is that our heart? Is that your heart? If not, if you recognize that there's some area of your life that you're not submitting to the Lord uh, that you are willfully turning against him, what, won't you make that change right now? Won't you submit your heart to him? God has all authority. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And if we want to honor him as our king, uh, we need to recognize we, we want to do things God's way because God's way works. God's way is truly glorifying to him. Um, are you willing to submit to him today? If you need to make some change, we can help you in that change in some way. Won't you let